At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 45, American Mafia, Rise to Power. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. This episode is made possible by Patreon contributors and one-time contributions to the website. So if you'd like to become a Patreon supporter or follow us on social media for more Cold War content and upcoming show information, check us out at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. Last episode, we covered the importance of the mafia to American politics in the mid-20th century, the origins of American organized crime, and the Italian mafia's conquest of the American criminal underworld. In this episode, we're going to cover the growth of the mob's power and influence in the American economy and politics despite the end of Prohibition and the Great Depression. We will look at the efforts by law enforcement and politicians to contain the mob and the Mafia's growing and often complex relationship with the government during this period. For millions of Americans, the 1930s and the Great Depression was a hard time. 25% of the nation's workforce was unemployed, and people went hungry. At the depths of the Depression in 1931, some 15 million people were out of work. Thousands waited in soup lines, and the future of the nation looked bleak. The newly established Mafia, however, had no financial worries. Indeed, the 1930s marked the beginning of an opulent age for organized crime in America. The gangsters left their first commission meeting in Chicago, though. They knew that Prohibition's days were numbered. The nation, by and large, had turned against the 18th Amendment. It had created more violence and corruption than it was supposed to end. The culture war, which had helped its creation, had come to an end as well. New legislation on immigration and the Depression had seen immigration to the United States decline dramatically. The worsening Depression added another anti-Prohibition argument. Wetz argued that repealing the prohibition would generate thousands of jobs and millions in tax revenues. In December of 1933, the 21st Amendment was ratified to the Constitution, repealing the 18th and ending the Great Social Experiment. Tens of thousands of New Yorkers poured into the streets to celebrate in spontaneous celebrations. The huge crowds required the emergency mustering of the entire New York police force of 20,000 officers for crowd control. The mafia was ready for the end of prohibition. Despite the fact that it had made the Mafia wealthier than their wildest dreams, the money they made from Prohibition allowed them to start up new criminal rackets and buy into existing rackets of the Jews and the Irish crime families. In 1925 alone, Luciano himself had made $12 million off bootlegging. After he paid the guards and truck drivers, he netted $4 million in profits, which is roughly $55 million in today's money. Moreover, these mobsters had learned valuable lessons in their 20s during Prohibition. It taught them how to plan and run complex organizations necessary for producing and supplying huge quantities of beer and whiskey. They became experts at smuggling and marshalling small armies of gunmen, truck drivers, and cargo handlers. 
They quickly became millionaires and became adept at laundering money, tax evasion, and other white-collar crime. They learned how to bribe the police and support politicians willing to give favors or turn a blind eye for campaign contributions. New focus would be on bookmaking, or what we would call sports gambling. Loan sharking, prostitution, narcotics trafficking, robberies, cargo hijackings, and the numbers game. The numbers game was sort of like the neighborhood lottery of the period that the mob ran. Rule the underworld, and all criminals in the cities throughout the nation had to pay tribute. Professional burglars, pimps, stick-up men, or people who committed armed robbery all had to pay up. Those that did not were soon made an example of. They became skilled at deposing of stolen goods, and many burglars became reliant on the mob to move their stolen merchandise. In many ways, the mob used their control of the underworld to work with the police. Some thug hurt a kid or raped a woman. He better pray the police found him before the mob did. They more often extracted a more barbaric street justice. In Louisiana, for example, the mob worked with the FBI to help bring the Mann Act against the head of the local KKK. The mob quickly gained control over the sport of boxing. Boxing at the time was one of the nation's most popular sports, and with sports came sports betting. Al Capone, Lucky Luciano, Dutch Schultz all ran their own boxers. Boxing like a life of crime was violent, and gangsters identified with it and understood it. Despite mob involvement, many fights were on the level or fair fights, but many others were fixed. Mafia also expanded into other businesses and regions of the nation. They became involved in what was the movie business. In the 1930s, the mob had taken over the projection union, like many unions in the U.S. They threatened Chicago theaters that if they didn't pay them a ransom of 100000 they would have the union strike and demand two projections per theater, crippling their business. In the end, they paid the ransom. The film industry was a new business in America. Starting in New York, junkyards and other small businesses had invested in moving picture machines, or Nickelodeons, sort of like a giant box which showed one short movie for a nickel. They made a fortune but were sued by Edison for patent infringement. So many moved to Southern California, far away from Edison and with good weather for filming to build studios and make better movies. By the 1920s, many were fabulously rich and their stars like Charlie Chaplin were iconic figures. Movie stars became influential within American society. Theaters such as the Roxy in New York and the Oriental in Chicago were built like palaces. Nevertheless, the Depression hit the movie industry hard with deep cuts to profits and no lines of credit available from the banks for expanding studios or shooting new movies. The studios were forced to cut salaries and other expenses. In 1933, they cut the craft union salary by 50% and the union fought back. The studio executives claimed that the union were communist and a bitter struggle ensued. Johnny Roselli, the resident mob boss from Chicago, was brought in as a labor consultant to break the strike. The studio quickly became in indebted to the mob, and by the 1930s, they were a force in Hollywood using the unions to extort tribute from both the theater chains and the studios. To illustrate just how important movies had become to the U.S. economy, it was the fifth largest industry in the United States at the time. Hundreds of thousands of people worked in the film industry from laborers, producers, extras, actors, directors, writers, etc. They also became involved in another of America's new industries, the automobile industry. Akin to Hollywood, the car companies ran large, complex organizations that were dependent on large labor forces with production concentrated in key locations. Like movies, the automobile had come of age at the turn of the century. Like Hollywood, they feared organized labor and relied on the mob to help keep their workforce in line. Some mob figures were even given Ford dealerships and recommended for corporate jobs, and throughout the 1930s, the mob helped keep car manufacturers' workers in line. 
These industries today seem very familiar and traditional, yet in the 1930s and 1940s, these industries were relatively new. In contrast, today it would be like the equivalent of the mob having influence in an Amazon or Google or Facebook. Jewish gangs in the garment district quickly became vassals of Luciano's family, one of New York's largest and most profitable districts. The Italians respected the Jews for their intelligence and financial abilities, and the Jews respected the Italians' strength and discipline. Bonono's family took over a series of legitimate businesses, three coat manufacturers, a trucking company, laundries, cheese suppliers, and a funeral parlor many assumed was used to get rid of the bodies of the victims murdered by the family. The five families also took over the unions, and through the unions they took control of the waterfront, the Fulton Fish Market, the wholesale meat and produce markets in Manhattan and Brooklyn, construction and trucking companies, hotels and restaurants. Even took control of the Jewish kosher chicken business, forcing out the Jews. The mob not only took over the unions and took a portion of their dues, but shaked down hundreds of legitimate businesses for protection money. Jewish and Irish mobs offered little resistance in the end. It was easier to work with the Italians than to stand in their way, especially as they were a united force. Even Meyer Lansky had to ask Luciano for his approval, and despite all of his influence, he was never allowed to sit in on commission discussions. The once famous Jewish Purple Gang either became hitmen for the Italians, were whacked by the mob, or worked as bookies paying the mafia protection money. Despite these changes, though, in Cleveland, the Jews continued to be the premier organized crime group. The head of the Irish mob in New York, Oni Madden, had kept the Italians at bay in the 1920s. He was known for his ruthlessness and celebrity millionaire status. He owned over 20 nightclubs in Harlem and the famous Cotton Club and had enormous influence with City Hall. With the death of Prohibition, though, and the United Italian Mafias, he couldn't compete or survive in the long run, so at 40 in 1933, he retired and relocated to Hot Springs, Arkansas. Well, there, he built a country club and a casino, which catered to an older crowd that came to stay at the Hot Springs to improve their health. The local police and politicians were quickly bought off as well. Men also set himself up as sort of a mob consultant, and many mob bosses over the years came to visit him for advice. Nevertheless, the Irish and Tom Pendergast still called the shots in Kansas City, despite the Italians controlling the underworld of Kansas City. Crime in the South was different. It was generally more tolerant of drinking and gambling. Mayors, governors, and sheriffs were open to work with the mob, and there was little violence. Miami had boomed in the 1920s, and with the Depression, the mob moved in and began to take control of the local rackets. When an army sergeant named Batista seized power in Cuba, Meyer Lansky traveled to meet him. Negotiating an agreement to open the largest hotel and casino in the Western world, the Hotel Nationale. So you might be asking yourself, what was the police and law enforcement doing while all this was happening? And the answer was, not much. They were either corrupt, too indifferent, or too ignorant to disturb the mob. In New York, the DAs usually were picked by Tammany Hall, the corrupt Democratic Party machine that ran the city, never investigated any mob crimes, probably because they had been on the payroll of the mob since the 1920s. The city's newspapers, then the principal source of information, were equally passive about investigating the mob. During Prohibition, articles about murders, gangsters, and kidnappings sold papers, but no one really cared about bookies, numbers, games, and code factories. In stark contrast, writers and editors often dined at parties with underworld figures. The editor of the New York World at one point owed his bookie 700000 In many ways, the mob learned from the failure of Al Capone, how not to be a good mobster. Capone, unlike other mob bosses, lived in the open. After taking over from Joe Torrio, he ran his family for about three years. 
He cultivated a public image as a Robin Hood figure, supplying people with a simple vice. He wore fancy suits and helped the poor with soup kitchens and provided milk for children. When politicians and others called him out, he called them out for their hypocrisy and how despite their high-minded ideals, they themselves didn't live up to them and they were still consuming alcohol in secret. This brought a lot of attention to Capone, especially to law enforcement who were incensed that he flaunted the criminal justice system in front of them. This coupled with the escalating violence of the beer war, which was a fought between the outfit and the Northside Irish gang, turned many people against Capone, and the IRS famously brought him down for tax evasion. Gangsters learned from this to keep violence to a minimum and to stay out of the public light. The government, in contrast, did not learn from the Capone experience. They failed to recognize that although they arrested Capone, the outfit, his criminal family, continued to operate. In full disclosure, I should mention that my grandfather, as told to me by him, worked briefly for Capone as a boy when Capone visited his town outside of Chicago. Capone gave my grandfather money to go and pick up sandwiches for him and his crew while they stayed there while things cooled down in Chicago. By the 1930s, many speculated that the mafia was part of some secret Illuminati plot. Many couldn't fathom that some poor, dirty immigrant kids could become so outrageously wealthy. The mob saw themselves as the incarnation of the new generation of robber barons. Unlike the older generation of mafioso, the generation of mafioso who had come of age in the U.S. looked up to not the padroni back in far-off Sicily, but the titans of American industry and finance like Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Carnegie, and J.P. Morgan. These men bribed politicians, let nothing stand in their way of their profits, and came from humble backgrounds minus J.P. Morgan. So in many ways, they were emulating their heroes. Despite the shortcomings in law enforcement, some still struggled against the mob. Thomas E. Dewey, if you remember from episode 12, had come from a prominent Republican family and had served briefly as DA in 1932, prosecuting the notorious Waxy Gordon, making a name for himself as a competent and upstanding DA in an openly corrupt city. In 1937, he ran for DA and was elected. His first target was the Jewish mobster Dutch Schultz. Dutch's gang was the last in New York not subservient to the Italians. As Prohibition ended, he made a move to control the Restaurant Workers Union and used it as a way to extort labor peace bribes from restaurant owners. He also took over the numbers racket in Harlem from the blacks. In the Depression, the numbers game was very popular and thousands of New Yorkers played. The game grossed an estimated $20 million a year in bets and very few lucky winners cut into his profits. Dutch was especially brutal and could kill a man at the drop of a hat. Famously, when he suspected one of his lieutenants of betraying him, he encased his feet in concrete and dumped him into the Hudson River while still alive. Dutch was in a tough spot, though. The Italians were coming for him, as was the DA, with the tax evasion charges. In order to appease the Italians, he converted to Catholicism, hoping the Italians would view him as an equal. At the same time, Dutch started to plot the assassination of Dewey. When Luciano and the rest of the five families caught wind of the plan, they concluded that assassinating the DA, especially one as upstanding as Dewey, would bring too much heat down on organized crime. The people would demand action, and even the most corrupt politicians wouldn't be able to save them. So they green-lighted the assassination of Dutch, murdering him before he could get to Dewey. After Dutch's death, Luciano took over his numbers racket and his restaurant unions. Ironically, in saving Dewey's life and eliminating Dutch, Luciano became Dewey's next target, and while Luciano's blueprint for the mob protected most of his fellow bosses, he himself ended up serving a long prison sentence. In 1936, he was arguably the strongest mob boss in the country, though he was relatively unknown to the public. 
He preferred to keep his name out of the headlines and to operate behind the scenes. He was, however, far less discreet about his alliances with political figures. Tammany Hall politicians openly socialized with him, and he attended major political gatherings. At the 1932 Democratic Convention, he and his underboss, Frank Costello, attended the convention as guests of Tammany Hall delegation. Luciano shared a suite at the convention with James Hines, a West Side district leader who would later become convicted of taking bribes. They, of course, couldn't vote at the convention, but their money and influence was recognized by Democrats and they were treated as royalty. Despite his low profile, Dewey was well aware of Luciano's deep ties to the Democratic Party. They didn't believe Luciano's cover story that he had made all of his wealth from professional gambling. Luciano owned a private plane for trips to Saratoga Springs, Miami, and other resorts. He dressed in expensive suits, was a bachelor, and loved to party. He lived in a Waldorf Astoria hotel and a three-room posh apartment suite at the cost of 7000 a year, or about 100000 in today's money. Nevertheless, Dewey's first few months of investigating turned up nothing. Luciano was aware that his phones might be tapped and didn't talk business over the phone and kept his conversations short. Moreover, he kept no records and memorized all his financial details. But Dewey's agents unexpectedly came upon a lead that entangled Luciano in a vice crime. Through wiretaps, they learned that Luciano was involved in the prostitution racket. Immediately, Dewey started building a case by first arresting the prostitutes and madams to flip them against the gangsters running the brothels. He then tried to flip those gangsters, madams, and prostitutes to take the stand against Luciano. Dewey proved that an organization headed by Luciano operated around 300 brothels in Manhattan and Brooklyn, which employed about 2,000 working girls and grows some $12 million a year. He also convinced three prostitutes to testify against Luciano, claiming that he had direct involvement in the operation of the brothels. Luciano fled to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and the refuge of Owen Madden, but Dewey obtained an extradition order to bring him back on 90 counts of aiding and abetting compulsory prostitution. Luciano used his connections through it, though, and after a few hours was released from jail as the chief detective of Hot Springs paid his $5,000 bail. Dewey's men, though, traveled down to Hot Springs and, with the help of state troopers, arrested Luciano. Before Luciano's lawyers or Hot Springs politicians could react, Dewey kidnapped Luciano, taking him back to New York. At May and June, the trial of Luciano, the, quote, czar of organized crime, close quote, was a front-page news. Sixty-eight former prostitutes, madams, pimps, and former criminals all testified against Luciano. Dewey portrayed the women as desperate victims of the Depression that were manipulated by Luciano and his crime syndicate. Luciano's defense team portrayed Luciano as an innocent professional gambler and upstanding citizen. It called into question the character of the prostitutes, madams, pimps, and criminals that testified against him. Things looked to be going well for Luciano, but he made the mistake of deciding to take the stand in his own defense. Cross-examination of Luciano by Dewey didn't go well. In fact, it was disastrous. Dewey had studied every piece of information he could find about Luciano and began to pepper him with questions, and pretty quickly Luciano's stories started to not add up. The best he could do was to say he didn't know or he couldn't remember. Luciano claimed to not know co-defendants or people who testified against him, but Dewey produced the phone records showing that they had made phone calls to his suite at the Waldorf. Dewey also produced phone records that showed phone calls to Al Capone and other well-known mob figures. Dewey also dug up his 1929 to 1935 tax returns, which showed his highest declared income to be 22500 
How is a man who only made $22,500 a year afford a $7,000 a year rent and a private plane? Hammering and mumbling, Luciano was unable to explain his lifestyle. The most damaging moment came when Dewey disclosed that in 1923, Luciano had given up an associate to the feds in order to evade charges, a clear violation of the mob code. Dewey, to his face, called him a stool pigeon, and an embarrassed and humiliated Luciano admitted that he had violated the code of Omorta. The jury needed only nine hours to deliver a guilty verdict. The jury handed down a sentence of 30 to 50 years in prison. The next year, when he attempted to appeal the case, his repeal was rejected. Lucky Luciano was the only major crime figure to be arrested during the era. Overnight, Dewey became an American hero. He lectured on radio and newsreels about the danger of organized crime. Hollywood even made a movie based off the case called Marked Woman in 1937 with Humphrey Bogart playing Dewey. Dewey, as you will remember, went on to be elected governor of New York and the Republican candidate for the president in 1944 and again in 1948, which we reviewed in episode 12. Back, the witnesses taking the stand were coached, and they had all gotten plea deals, so the evidence probably wasn't that compelling. Dewey probably also knew that, in fact, Luciano didn't play a major role in running the brothels, but it was the only angle he had on him. Luciano's defense team made a huge blunder in making him take the stand. They underestimated Dewey's capabilities as a lawyer, probably because listening to Dewey, he wasn't the greatest speaker, but he had a way from what I've read about uh, organizing facts and making persuasive arguments and deconstructing his opponents. Rhetorically speaking, he was a dangerous man to cross swords with in a debate, and many learned that the hard way. Regardless of Dewey's success, he and prosecutors for decades to come would focus on convicting individuals, mostly mid-level to low-level mobsters, not the organization. Not understanding that the mafia wasn't like other gangs, it was more like an army. Losses could be replaced, and no member was indispensable to the organization. Despite being incarcerated, Luciano didn't live like other prisoners. His status within the prison was well known to the inmates and the guards. He spent most of his time playing cards, strolling around the prison grounds, and watching handball games. Inmates lined up in the yard to speak with him, and he pretty much ran the place. Even from the inside the walls of the prison, he was still considered the head of his family. Despite his nominal leadership of the family, Frank Costello became the acting boss controlling the day-to-day -day operations of the mob. Costello used to boast that he had worked with Joe Kennedy, JFK's father, during Prohibition. He was known for operating slot machines and was one of the biggest suppliers of machines in the country. Sensibly, his company made candy vending machines, but in reality they supplied mom-and-pop stores, small soda fountains, and other neighborhood shops with illegal slot machines. In 1932, slot machines brought in $37 million, or roughly $600 million in today's money. In 1934, Republican Mayor LaGuardia cracked down on Costello's one-armed bandits throughout the city. Nevertheless, cooperating with the New Orleans mob and the corrupt Governor Huey Long, New Orleans and the rest of Louisiana became a home for his slot machines. It should be noted that, technically speaking, gambling was outlawed in the state, but the law wasn't enforced. Mayor LaGuardia also cracked down on Tammany Hall, the corrupt Democratic political machine in New York. You remember from American History Class or Episode 12, the political machines rigged elections and gave out municipal jobs as political favors, not because the person was actually qualified for the job. It was also notoriously corrupt for stealing taxpayers' money. Famously, a courthouse that was estimated to have cost 250000 ended up costing the taxpayers $12 million. With the loss of this revenue, though, the Democrats became even more dependent on the mob money, and Costello was happy to supply. 
Until this time, the party leadership had mainly been Irish, but with the newfound power, the district leaders and politicians became Italian. All the party nominees in New York City first had to get the mob's blessing. Stella's ability to pull political and judicial strings enhanced his power with the other families. Among the other dons, his political ties earned him the nickname the Prime Minister. Judges, politicians, congressmen, writers, and the who's who of New York could be seen at his parties and in the, his majestic penthouse suite overlooking Central Park. Unlike Capone, though, he still kept his name out of the papers and was virtually unknown to the public until 1943 when Dewey's successor tried to unsuccessfully prosecute him for racketeering. I want to take a quick moment and to thank our Patreon supporters and our one-time contributors for making this show possible. Unfortunately, I lack a criminal underworld to support the podcast. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment for the podcast. If you like episodes like this one, which focus on American history, a subject's not often covered in detail, like we do here in the Cold War podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter at the $5 level or for whatever amount you feel is appropriate. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or of the show or my bad jokes, consider becoming a Patreon supporter so you can get access to the commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. Beyond New York and Dewey, there was very little effort at prosecuting the mob. Most local police were either too lax or on the take. The FBI, as we outlined before, didn't investigate the mob either. They had the ability to, with the Mann Act, as the mob was heavily involved in prostitution or could have furnished information to state law enforcement as they did with communists. The real reason for this remains a mystery, but there are a few theories. One is that J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, was corrupt and financially benefited from the mob. We do know that he socially mixed with them, but there seems to be little evidence that he was directly paid by them. Besides, if you remember from episode 42, Hoover by the 1930s and 1940s was economically well-to-do. Another theory is that the mob supposedly blackmailed Hoover over his alleged homosexuality. This may have been true, but no real evidence beyond rumor exists to prove this. Many people, including his enemies, claimed that they knew of his homosexuality, and it doesn't appear that Hoover was intimidated by them. Some have postulated that Hoover saw taking on the mob as a losing proposition. Hoover liked to fight battles that he could win. The mob was a complex and tough organization by the 1930s, and it would take de decades to deconstruct. Moreover, as we've seen, they had many powerful friends in the press, business, and government. Bad publicity and cuts to funding by pro-mob politicians would hurt the FBI. This, on the face of it, seems to make a lot of sense, but again, we have no hard evidence to prove it. Finally, it occurred to me while doing research for this episode that Hoover might have seen the mob as a necessary enemy to counter the communists. The mafia was heavily involved in the unions and in breaking strikes in the late 1930s for industry, so he might have seen them as a foil to what he considered the greater threat to the country. But again, this is purely conjecture on my part. World War II also improved the mob's fortunes. Many police officers and federal agents were focused on German spies, and thousands of cops and agents left their posts to serve in the military. Dewey, the DA, had now been elected governor of New York. Mayor LaGuardia, in his third term, begged FDR to become a general. Only District Attorney Hogan, Dewey's successor, continued to try and prosecute the mob. Huge defense industries created a roaring economy with full employment. Many people for the first time since the 1920s had money in their pockets, but nowhere to spend because of the wartime rationing. Mobsters soon became good at creating counterfeit ration cards or bribing corrupt officials to give them more ration cards or scarce items. Overnight, an obscure capo in Brooklyn, Carlo Gambino, became a millionaire. 
Even a street-level soldier made about 150000 or about $2 million in today's money bribing government workers to hand over valuable stamps. The war also became the saving grace of Lucky Luciano languishing in prison. When the war began, American shipping was being sunk at an alarming rate by German U-boats off the coast. More than 120 ships and hundreds of lives were lost in the first three months of 1942 without the loss of a single German U-boat. Remembering the sabotage of World War I and the ex- explosion on Black Time Island, the government feared German sabotage. New York was the nation's greatest port, and its operations were vital to the war effort. It was a major base for the Navy and primary port in sending critical supplies to the British. If New York's harbor closed for any length of time, it could have a detrimental effect on the war. These fears were heightened when the French luxury liner Normandy, while being converted into a troop transport, caught fire and capsized. It was discovered later that the fire had been the result of human error, but at the time, naval intelligence suspected that it was sabotage. In June 1942, fears were heightened when eight German saboteurs were captured. They had come ashore via U-boats on Long Island and Florida. The government had greater concerns about the large Italian-American community living in the United States. Italy, if you recall, was an Axis power, and with Germany, it had declared war on the United States. The Navy feared that these Italians working on the docks or amongst the hundreds of small fishing boats could be aiding the German U-boats and saboteurs. They sent in a special security unit, B-3, to investigate, but they quickly discovered that the mob ran the waterfront. Therefore, the Navy reached out to the Manhattan DA to broker a meeting between the mob and the Navy. Joseph Sox, Lanza, the capo of the Costello Luciano family, agreed to work with the Navy but his territory only covered the Fulton Fish Market and the East River in Lower Manhattan. The West Side and the Brooklyn Piers were operated by other families, so he advised the Navy to reach out to Luciano to broker a deal with the other families. At this point, Luciano had been in jail for six years and was ineligible for parole for another 24. He agreed to help the Navy, but he expected that the Navy would help him have his sentence reduced. But like the Navy, Luciano wanted his cooperation with the government kept secret. He had never become a naturalized citizen, and if the Allies lost the war, he could be deported back to a fascist Italy that might look on his support for the Americans in the war unfavorably. Luciano had little personally invested on the waterfront, but members of his crime family and other mafia families and the Irish who operated on the waterfront owed him favors. He instructed Meyer Lansky to operate as his ambassador and to spread the message that he wanted everyone in the underworld to work with naval intelligence. During the war, there were no strikes or work stoppages, nor were there any sabotage. Before the invasion of Sicily in 1943, the mob also helped to find several Sicilians who aided naval intelligence in preparing maps of Sicily, harbors, and in finding old photos of the island's coastline. Nevertheless, despite the government's concerns that there was large groups of sympathetic fascists among the Italian-American community, to the contrary, most were extremely patriotic and millions served valiantly in the U.S. military. It's debatable what real impact the mob had on helping the United States during the war. Nevertheless, Luciano tried to capitalize on his cooperation with the government. In 1943, he applied for a sentence reduction but was rejected. But in the summer of 1945, with the war coming to an end, he petitioned the government to be released, citing his assistance to the Navy as grounds for his release. By this time, the man that had put Luciano in jail, Dewey, was now the governor, and he was petitioning him to be set free. Dewey looked into the matter, and the Navy denied, asking Luciano for help, but the New York DA confirmed much of what Luciano had claimed. 
Dewey could have easily ignored Luciano's claim and let him rot in jail, but but the fair man that he was, he agreed to release Luciano and the condition that he be deported back to Italy. If he ever returned, he would be arrested as an escaped criminal and be sentenced to 50 years in prison. February 1946, Luciano sailed back to Sicily to live in exile. When he arrived in his home village, he was given a royal welcome. Hundreds of villagers turned out cheering and waving American flags. He was driven around town with a police escort. He had left as a poor boy but had returned a multimillionaire in the eyes of many the personification of the American dream. But Luciano soon found the place of his birth to be rustic and primitive and moved to Palermo and later to Naples. Other mob bosses, such as Vito Genovese, played both sides during the war. In 1937, he fled the United States to escape impending indictment on an old murder case. Still an Italian citizen, he moved to Naples and became an ardent fascist to ward off any suspicion by the government. As a demonstration of his loyalty, he donated 250000 to the construction of a new fascist headquarters in Naples. During the war, he also arranged the assassination of one of Mussolini's opponents living in New York. Mussolini even awarded him a knighthood. When things turned against the fascists, though, Genovese quickly dropped his fascist sympathies. He became an interpreter to the U.S. military government in Naples. He quickly made connections to corrupt military officers. Officers supplied him with, sca- with scarce items like sugar and flour, which he transported in army trucks and then sold in the black market, laundering the money through Swiss bank accounts. Army intelligence quickly learned all about his black market operation and arrested him. Undeterred, he attempted to bribe the officers with 250000 in cash. It didn't work, though, and he was deported back to the U.S. to face murder charges. However, before he arrived in the U.S., the main witnesses in the case against him mysteriously died and the case against him collapsed. The end of the war didn't mark the end of the good times for the mob, though. The lifting of travel restrictions and wages meant the beginning of a pent-up spending binge. Illegal gambling and sports betting exploded. Families had extensive illegal gambling interests in New York, Miami, and New Orleans, but they had their sights set on the expansion into legalized gambling in Nevada. At the end of the war, Nevada was the only state with legalized gambling. Various types of gambling had been legal in Nevada since the 1870s, and in 1931, almost every type of gambling was legalized as an attempt to help the economy during the Depression. The only problem was that the industry was very small, and Nevada was relatively remote, and the rich didn't want to travel there. The handful of casinos in Reno and Las Vegas resembled small desert towns with poker as the main attraction for a more rustic cowboy clientele. One man had a vision that would change all this, though. Bugsy Siegel, a Jewish gangster who had come up in New York with Meyer Lansky and Luciano. Siegel had immigrated to America in 1911 from Russia as a young boy. He came up in the street fights of his childhood to the violence of prohibition in his youth. By 1936, Siegel was operating out of Los Angeles on behalf of Luciano. Siegel was a fancy dresser, suave and charming, and a perfect mafia steward for Los Angeles and Hollywood. He funneled millions back to the East Coast families, but made enough to buy himself a 35-room mansion and live a very respectable life, joining some of the area's most exclusive country clubs. Running a small fleet of casino cruise ships out of Long Beach and Los Angeles, they operated just outside the three-mile district of California waters, making gambling illegal. They even ran ads in newspapers and billboards. The new DA, Earl Warren, wanted to rid rid themselves of these vessels and sent police boarding parties to commandeer the vessels in violation of the law, making it too difficult for the ships to continue to operate, bringing an end to the gambling in California. Siegel saw Vegas as a new gambling destination outside of Warren's reach 
and after the war, Las Vegas became Siegel's obsession. He became convinced that the desert town was the ideal location for a unique hotel and casino experience. Las Vegas was in reach of Southern California's exploding population by car. Air travel could bring in the high rollers from the Midwest and the East Coast as well. So in 1946, he raised $3 million from Costello, Lansky, and a consortium of mafia and Jewish underworld investors. Siegel had a lot of experience in running gambling operations. He and Lansky operated several, quote, carpet joints, or very nice private clubs with fine furnishing and expensive drinks. Lansky had operated for upscale gamblers in Florida, New York, Texas, and Havana. His dream, the casino of the Flamingo, was estimated to cost $1 million to build, but he ended up spending three times that amount. Building materials were in short supply, and he wanted only the best, and the plans for the casino had been drawn up quickly, with much of the work having to be redone. The casino rushed opening on December the 26th, 1946, was a disaster. In the first few weeks, the casino actually lost money, and it had no income from the hotel as its rooms were unfinished. Siegel closed the Flamingo for two months to straighten out the operation and gather more investment and reopened in March of 1947, but still continued to lose money. On June the 20th, 1947, alone in the Los Angeles home of his mistress, reading the newspaper, his body was riddled with bullets. Who ordered the hit and who was responsible is not clear. What is clear is that the financial losses of the Flamingo probably played a part. Eventually, the Flamingo, under new mob management, became a stunning success becoming the forerunner of many casinos to, to come over the preceding decades. Ironically, Siegel's death brought the casino front-page news throughout the nation, which drew many people to the casino out of morbid curiosity. Las Vegas was a new territory for the mob, and to ensure no conflict, the city was declared an open city, meaning any family could operate there. In the late 1940s, Nevada's politicians welcomed the investment and gambling specialists that flocked to Las Vegas protecting and encouraging the state's infant industry that promised to become the state's largest revenue source, discreetly ignoring the underworld links of investors into the new casinos. Back in New York, despite the end of the war, the government and law enforcement were as lax on the mob as they had been in the 1930s. Even when not corrupted, federal and local law enforcement were woefully uncoordinated. Federal agencies and police departments around the country operated independently, barely sharing intelligence. In fact, through the 1940s, not a single agent of the FBI was assigned to investigate the mafia. With the onset of the Cold War, the Bureau refocused its operations on investigating communists, and as we outlined earlier, Hoover wouldn't allow agents to investigate the mob either. Indeed, the only agency that challenged the mob and spoke about its existence was the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and its director, Harry J. Angslinger. The Narcotics Bureau's job was to fight drug trafficking. Narcotics agents went undercover and recruited paid informants. They also used torture and physical abuse to gather information. Lacking Hoover's skills and bureaucratic politics, though, the Narcotics Bureau never got the government support and media attention the FBI received. Hoover was the American defender of justice, and Anslinger and his colleagues labored in relative obscurity. With a maximum of 300 agents, his force was far smaller and paid far less. Narcotics in the 1930s and 1940s weren't the problem they are today. Of the small amount of drugs that came into the country, 95% was smuggled in by the mafia by the 1940s. When the Narcotics Bureau was established in 1930, the agency found that the drug scene was diversified with Jewish, Chinese, Irish, and Italian gangs. In 1939, however, through undercover work and arrests, his agents learned that the drug trade had been taken over by the Italians. To investigate the rising strength of the Italian mob, Angslinger hired Italian-American agents to work undercover, discovering far more about the mafia beyond the drug trade. 
1946, they discovered that Luciano had moved to Havana, Cuba in an attempt to regain control of his family in the U.S. The U.S. government foiled the plot, though, by placing pressure on the Cuban government to expel Luciano from Cuba, effectively ending his comeback plan. The Narcotics Bureau understood the mafia's general outlines and organization, but the FBI and many other federal agencies ridiculed the work done by the Narcotics Bureau and its belief in the mafia. Despite this setback, the mob scored another win in New York as Mayor LaGuardia had retired from public office. While LaGuardia had not stopped mob operations in New York, he had at least driven them underground. The mob candidate, backed by Tammany Hall, former Brooklyn DA William O'Dower, won the election and instituted a policy of laissez-faire law enforcement, allowing gambling to openly operate and flourish in low- and middle-income neighborhoods. Bookies and numbers operators operated in back rooms and pool halls for years. Now they worked out on the street with clipboards in hand as the police looked on and did nothing. New York police departments became so corrupt that some precincts failed to report crimes. Many crimes that were reported were assigned to Detective McCann, a joke meaning they were uh, threw away. The issue became so bad that the FBI in 1949 refused to publish New York City's crime statistics because they were so false and unreliable. In 1950, to escape a looming corruption scandal, President Truman had O'Dwyer appointed ambassador to Mexico. By 1950, 20 years after the creation of the commission, the families were prospering with many of the original godfathers still in place, controlling huge criminal conglomerates. Their organizations were more or less unknown to the general public, and they had little to fear from law enforcement. The only known mafia boss was Frank Costello as a result of his close ties to the Democratic Party. Overall, about 2,000 made men and 4,000 soldiers operated in the New York metropolitan area. Chicago had the second largest concentration with 300 made men. Nationwide, there was about 5,000 made men with 24 crime families. There were some issues with the Mangiano family, though. Albert Anastasia, who was an extremely violent man and ran an assassination squad nicknamed Murder, Inc., killed the leader of the family, Vincent Mangiano, and assumed leadership of the family. His body was never found, but everyone knew he had been murdered by him. The other bosses knew that Anastasia had broken the code, but decided it was no use in trying to stop his ascension at this point and allowed him to take leadership of his family. Besides, at this point, why rock the boat with an expensive war when everyone was making so much money? Many of the families around the nation sent their younger members to work and learn in New York with the five families, notably Santo Traficanto, the future boss of Tampa. The bloodshed that had existed between the families in the 1920s was a distant memory by the late 1940s as the crime families even intermarried, helping to secure the peace. All the mafia families continued to rely heavily on proven scams of sports gambling, numbers, loan sharking, and hijackings. The gross take from the numbers or lottery alone was $5 million a week or roughly $70 million in today's money. Indeed, it's estimated that the mafia was now more wealthier than any of the Fortune 500 companies operating in the U.S. during the time. The Lucchese family, like the Costello family, maintained close ties with the Democratic Party and bribed policemen and judges, but remained more behind the scenes. Beyond the money they offered politicians, they held a strong hold over the Italian voting bloc in New York. They also invested in the Republican Party and radical politics. Tommy Lucchese and his son, along with one of Meyer Lansky's sons, were appointed to West Point. He also had his arrests and convictions from the 1920s expunged from his records and given a certificate of good conduct. 
1951 election of mayor of New York was a complete farce. After O'Dower resigned, he was succeeded by Imperenti, or as the tabloids called him, Impey. His challenger, Judge Fernand Pecora, won the backing of the Democratic establishment, as well as the Lucchese family. Impey ran as an independent who was backed by Costella, meaning both candidates were funded by the mob. Impey pointed out Bocara's connections with the mob as well as the Democratic establishment. Impey won the election, but his mob connections were soon discovered when he was seen dining with members of the Lucchese family. Impey himself was quickly resigned from office, unable to complete his first term in office. Things were about to change for the mafia. That year, two new young senators, S. Kieshofer of Tennessee and Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin, were attempting to find an issue to catapult their careers. They both competed to head up a congressional investigation into organized crime in the United States. The impetus had come from many mayors who were struggling to deal with the explosion of illegal gambling after the war in their local communities. Since Kiefer was a Democrat and the Democrats controlled the Senate, he won the leadership of the subcommittee. Nonetheless, McCarthy found another way, as we shall see, of making himself famous or infamous by hunting down supposed communists working in the U.S. government in the end receiving far more attention than Kiefer. In the beginning, little was expected of Kiefer. The Democratic Party feared that conservative Southern Democrats and Republicans would come after their base in the Northeast and in the big cities, so the administration of Truman were not fans of the committee's work. Nor was the FBI, nor were local police departments, many of whom were in the pay of the mob or didn't want their ineffectiveness put on display. Nevertheless, Kiefer and the committee pressed on. From May 1950 to May 1951, the subcommittee, formerly titled the Special Committee to Investigate Organized Crime, held public hearings in 14 cities across the nation. Overall, the committee called more than 600 witnesses but received little attention until it arrived in New York. In New York, the subcommittee learned the power of television. The three major news networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, televised the hearings live in a rare coast-to-coast broadcast. The procession of bookies, pimps, politicians, and shady lawyers captivated the nation, becoming the nation's first live TV spectacle, drawing an unprecedented audience of between 20 to 30 million viewers daily. A highlight of the event was the appearance of Frank Costello. Most of the underworld figures called before the committee pled the fifth. In the U.S., the Fifth Amendment gives you the legal protection of not incriminating yourself. Costello, though, felt pleading the fifth would make him look guilty. He believed that he was smart enough to refute pointed questions and to maintain his false persona of being a legitimate businessman. He did make one demand that the committee granted, which was to not show his face on camera. This plan ultimately backfired. The camera only focused on his hands and the sound of his gravelly voice. This combination of seeing his hands and the unusual sound of his voice gave him a sinister and mysterious impression on TV. His vocal cords had been damaged in an operation to remove a throat polyp which resulted in an unnatural raspy voice. In the movie Godfather, legend has it Marlon Brando, who played Vito Corleone, is said to have imitated Costello's voice, having studied the recordings of the committee's hearings. Costello was ultimately held in contempt of Congress for sidestepping questions about his net worth and given a 15-month prison sentence. This also galvanized the IRS to investigate his tax returns. Unlike Capone, though, Costello had been careful about hiding his wealth. Nevertheless, when Mrs. Capone Costello discovered her husband had been cheating on her. She went out on a $750,000 shopping spree. Costello couldn't explain how his wife had the ability to spend this much given his reported income. He was convicted and imprisoned for 11 months before his conviction was overturned on appeal. Myra Lansky appeared before the court but pled the fifth. 
Nevertheless, becoming before the committee shined a light on him. Disclosures about his gambling background led to the closure of his illegal casinos, and he was forced to plead guilty to gambling charges in upstate New York, where he was jailed for three months and fined $2,500. He was subsequently hounded by law enforcement the rest of his life until his death in 1983, but he was never convicted. Former Mayor O'Dower took the stand and admitted to working with Costello because of his money. Many senators saw a connection between the Cold War and organized crime, claiming that the two were working hand-in-hand, even though there's no evidence of the mafia and Soviet collaboration. Keefe Offer, who had hoped to use the hearings as a political stepping stone, ironically was criticized for not questioning underworld figures in his home state of Tennessee or the states of other senators on the committee, such as Arkansas and Nevada. He attempted to run in the Democratic Presidential Convention in 1952, but Truman and the big city Democrats blocked his nomination and supported Adlai Stevenson. In the end, the subcommittee concluded that organized crime was real and not just an urban legend. The mafia was a reality that was aided by widespread political and police corruption and that its two major cities were in New York and Chicago. For the first time, a federal body publicly identified the mafia. Nevertheless, though the committee lacked specific evidence of crimes and the FBI and law enforcement were still hesitant to fight organized crime. Congress also disregarded the committee's work, declining to pass any meaningful legislation to address the problem. In the end, the committees represented the first step in the government's long battle with the mafia and not its conclusion. I want to, as always, thank our Patreon contributors for making this show possible. Make sure you stay tuned for our next episode as we explore post-war Japan and the early Cold War. Additionally, we have another interview episode coming up with the Wendy Cold War Museum here in uh, Southern California around imagery and art of the Cold War. If you like this show or any of our past episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in getting us more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you have already made a contribution but would still like to help, Give the podcast a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th. 
Join in club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.